As we mark Labor Day, we look to the state of American workers today, as well as the history of the labor movement in the United States. Dr. Nelson Lichtenstein is a history professor at the University of California, Santa Barbara, joins me uh, on the show once again to discuss labor issues as President Biden strives to keep up to the pledges he has made uh, to unions and workers as we cope with the impact of the pandemic on workers and the economy and so much more. Welcome back to the program, Professor. Thank you very much. The last time you were on the show, we talked about Joe Biden's pro-labor push and his pledge to be the most pro-union president you've ever seen. Now, as we approach Labor Day, we're taking stock of his leadership, the human infrastructure investments. Talk a little bit about your thoughts on how Biden is living up to his pledge. Well, on the one hand, uh, he's, he is, in fact, put, pushing forward this very large program. He has, in fact, learned important lessons since 2009 and 10, when that was not the case. He's pushing that forward. That's It's chancy, you know, whether it will go through, that's, a, that's another question. So he's pushing that through. And the net effect of that, and in all of the programs that have been put forward, including those under Trump, but also under Biden, has been to uh, provide a, a, a real cushion of um, income and money, including things like, for example, the uh, abatement on uh, on evictions, which is, has enabled American workers to weather this pandemic in a, a way much better than we than we would have thought in March of uh, 2020 when it began. And this has has generated a very interesting phenomena where we have this uh, so-called labor shortage. It's actually a, a wonderful thing. <laughs> and one of Biden's most radical things he says is well, we want a society where com- companies compete for workers, not the other way around. That's actually quite radical. It's sort of full employment plus. And uh, he said that more than once. He means it. He signed an executive order in July, a sweeping order that was intended to curb corporate dominance, enhance business competition, give consumers and workers more choice, more power. And you wrote about it in The New York Times in the op-ed section, saying Biden proclaimed capitalism without competition isn't capitalism, it's exploitation. Very powerful words that he made. Talk a little bit about what he said and and what you thought. Yes. Well, it's remarkable. He's made these appointments to uh, the Federal Trade Commission, the Department of Justice, his National Economic uh, Council, which are of of young, vigorous, left-wing, well, left-liberal, anyway, lawyers who are taking antitrust seriously and and really in the same terms that we, when when the antitrust laws were were framed more than 100 years ago, they're returning to the original conception of antitrust, which was that large corporations, they don't just, you know, raise prices unnecessarily. That's That may well be true. But their greatest danger to American democracy is this enormous concentration of power, whether it's exercised in you know the political realm through, through contributions or even more importantly, whether it's exercised directly against their workers and maintaining a kind of uh, you know an inequitable class society. And Biden, in his, in his appointment, I mean, his appointments speak as loud as his words. And these appointments are going to adopt that view of antitrust that Big tech is is not a pro, not just a problem because uh, uh, Facebook may be charging too much money for Google, etc. But that it has too much power. Now that's a widely held view, but it's uh, but 
that's but he's going to do something about it or try to do something about it. And that is that's remarkable. Now, I think this will take a long time. The courts will not be very favorable, but he is reorienting antitrust and making it a much broader conception, more than just some technical question of whether or not your telephone or your Internet costs too much, but that it's, it's dealing with the fundamental issues of power inequalities in the in a capitalist society. And that's remarkable. And in many ways, it's about following through on the traditions of this nation and, and how it was built. And that's the very interesting part. You highlight how the order brings the U.S. back to that great anti-monopoly tradition that goes back to the nation's founding in taking on social and economic reform on behalf of people. Right. One of the things in the American Revolution that we that the, the, the patriots were critical of was the monopolies of the East India Company or other British, the monarchies, uh, you know, giving out of sort of handing out of monopolies to various favored people. And the American um, patriots were, were critical of that. And in the 19th century, there's a whole discourse and debate about, you know, how do you charter a corporation? Do you just give it to your friends or can anyone have a corporation? Well, subsequently, of course, uh, now anyone can form a corporation. But the question is, when a corporation, a business becomes so gigantic that it, it really is a de facto monopoly, then what do you do about it? And that's and I think there is this tradition. Yeah, yes, it does go back to the 19th century. And I think that the Biden people are self-consciously returning to that. They, they know about that. They've written about that. They aren't, they aren't ignorant. They're, they're sophisticated young lawyers, and, and, and they're, they're well aware of that. And I think that has a lot of resonance. I mean, I think on the American right, as well as on the left, it has a lot of resonance. The, you know, the Trumpite right, part of its appeal was sort of this hostility to elites, to, you know, to sort of monopolize uh, kind of, well, in their, from their point of view, the, the sort of cultural world. But I think there's, it does have an appeal on left and right. Infrastructure, something that we're seeing right now focused on by the U.S. Congress, by the president, something that has been fundamentally connected to workers and the economy. We have two different bills. We have a bill that focuses on narrowly physical infrastructure that many Republicans in the Senate have backed. And Joe Biden was very adamant about getting a bipartisan bill. We have also proposals in the budget reconciliation bill that include human infrastructure, what's being called human infrastructure, child care, elder care, investments in areas that help workers, even if those areas are not specifically about infrastructure. Talk about that and what it means for workers and how new this really is, in a sense. Well, right. Well, really, the, the second bill, the, reconstru- the reconciliation bill, the 3.5 trillion one, I mean, they, they use the phrase social infrastructure, which is true. And another way of which I prefer to speak to think of it is a, an increase in the social wage. And by that, I mean, when you think of things that are, that are provided as a matter of course by, by governments, like you know, elementary school education, or you know, or of course health healthcare, or subsidized housing, or childcare. This is sort of really this is a, a social wage, which benefits enormously. It may be universal, but it benefits enormously 
the working class and even the, the bottom half of the working class. And one, one of the things that advanced industrial countries in the 20th century have done, if progressive, is to increase the social wage. Anyone who's gone to Great Britain and used the National Health Service will know exactly what I'm talking about because it's it's free, it's easy to get, more or less, and it's and it re- relieves you of an enormous burden of cost. And in the U and the this social um, this reconciliation bill. Um, d- moves us a couple steps in that direction. Uh, it really expands uh, uh, the, the Obamacare and makes Medicare, Medicaid, a, a much a much better system. So it's I call it the social wage, and that's one thing that's happening today, which we didn't expect really, is that the social in this whole pandemic, the social wage has gone up. Just one example: getting your vaccine shot. It's free. It's free. It, it means that things that 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 are really come to you as a just a function of being a citizen of a, of a, of a country or being a resident there. Uh, free, ed, you know, ed, elementary education is a good example of that. You know, we don't have to, you don't have to pay for that if it's a public public education. And the vaccines are, are just one, one well now small but important example of the, of the it's it's free. I mean, and there's good reason it's free. They, they The government wants it to be, it's, it's a way to encourage people to, to do this very vital thing. And so I think that's an example of what's happening under the, um, the, well, the the context of the of the uh, COVID, I used uh, in another piece I wrote. You know, uh, Marx once said the war is the locomotive of history, meaning it pushes forward social trends which are already there uh, in a fast way. And in the same way that, say, in Great Britain during World War II, the National Health Service was was sort of it was begun during World War II because of the necessities of um, you know bombing and 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 you know people needed hospital uh, care and things. And then it, then after the war, it, it's established. Well, today the COVID. The war on the COVID, on the you know on the virus, is 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 sort of logically and and understandably pushing the government forward to do things that might not have done before, creating a broader constituency for that. And after the, it's all over, hopefully, and I, <laughs> that these some of these models and and initiatives will remain. And I think that's true for the expansion of medical care. I think it's also true for the increase in unemployment insurance. I mean, the even conservatives understood that when the pandemic first hit, the unemployment system in America was just terrible. And the $600 a, a month extra, which is quite a liberal, uh, even conservatives uh, supported it uh, in, in March and April of 2020. So I think that, um, and then of course, this social, this infrastructure bill, the, the two, 3.5 trillion is a, is a further example of that. And it, hopefully it will pass, but it's certainly it's on the agenda anyway. There's a kind of dichotomy here, a big political, social, uh, organizational dichotomy here when it comes to, to trade unionism. On the one hand, we have a situation which normally economists or others would say, this is this is terrific environment for the growth of unionism uh, in the United States. That is, we have a labor shortage, a de facto, we have a, a, a lot of monetary support for workers who are um, not, not quite ready to go back to the to the workforce, and you know, companies are competing for workers, and the president is in favor of he's announced he's in favor of unionism, and also he's in favor of companies competing for workers. But 
trade unionism as an institution is not, in fact, making a breakthrough. I mean, there are lots of good signs of young people in the tech world, et cetera, who are interested in unionism, and 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 we, you know, we find it in odd places. But in fact, it's not making a huge the kind of breakthroughs that that were the case in the 1930s or in public employment in the 1960s. It's not there, and I think the reason for that is that the the law, but even more importantly sort of standard operating procedure for any corporation is sort of extraordinarily hostile to the, the, the growth of trade unionism and the, and the mechanisms that would allow workers to choose a union. And that is something that, that is just a big dichotomy. That is, the environment is good for the growth of organized labor, but it's not happening. And um, I think we're long past the, the stage where someone could argue, well, workers don't want to join unions. I mean, this manifestly they do. Uh, whether this could be resolved through the, the so-called PRO Act, protecting the right to organize or anything else, uh, I'm not sure, but it's, it's a feature of our time right now. Speaking, of course, about what has happened to labor and to unions, much of the damage has been done by courts as well. And we have a Supreme Court that just <laughs> ruled in a way that negatively affects uh, organizing in agricultural workplaces. Tell us about the court's treatment of unions. Yes, well, the, the Supreme Court and lower courts, I mean, it's been, it's been decades and decades of the appointment of uh, conservative judges, or even, even sometimes liberal judges who, who may be quite attentive to racial and gender inequalities, but who just see uh, organized labor and the, the collective rights of workers as something, you know, well, that's a, a holdover from the 30s, not that important. Uh, they're, they're, you know, a, a Stephen Breyer on the Supreme Court, appointed by a, a liberals, uh, Clinton, I think, uh, is not particularly, you know, pro-trade union. But yes, but so there's many instances. This this one in, in, in having to do with California agriculture is a way it was a was one that was a negative toward the farm workers and sort of allowing uh, a, a companies uh, to uh, to basically uh, abrogate a, a labor contract if if it hadn't been enforced for a long time. Even more important recently was the um, the Janus case in which the court really basically declared that in, in public employment, uh, no union could ask of its members that they pay a portion, even uh, not just dues, but a portion of the dues for the services rendered. It was really making public employment right to work, That using that phrase, meaning, meaning that unions cannot sign a contract with an employer, public or private, in which paying, being a member of the union or paying a, a portion of union dues is a part of the of their um, obligations in a unionized workforce. So the, the courts have been terrible about this. But I want to make a point that I think is not made very often by pro labor people. In some ways, more important than the courts is what is considered standard, respectable corporate behavior. So today, any corporation worth its salt is going to try desperately to avoid the charge that it is racist or sexist or hostile to the environment. They will do all sorts of things and they'll pay real money sometimes to avoid that. It's a sense of shame and they also know their business practices, their business may be hurt by that. That does not apply to opposition to the, uh, their workers forming a union. They feel no sense of shame. They think there's no damage to their business model in using every tactic that's legal and some that are illegal to stop unionization. Now, in the past, in the in the days when unions were on the upswing, sometimes again, the late 30s, to the, sometimes the 60s, this was not the case. And corporations were anxious 
sometimes or, or public or public uh, entities like school systems were anxious to sign union contracts because in those rare moments unionism had a great deal of support and they thought that opposing unions had a real cost both moral and monetary and in terms of public relations so i think that one of the one sort of hopeful thing it's a distant hopeful thing but is the the shift in attitudes by the general public about unions about and young people in particular have this so this could in the future alter corporate behavior and i think that can be almost as important or as important as changing the actual labor law and the interpretation of the labor law by the courts. One last question I wanted to ask you about the the legacy of the AFL-CIO leader, Richard Trumka. He passed away this summer. Uh, He he led uh, the union during a, uh, and pro-union activism during a time when it was really under assault. Uh, It leaves a big void. Talk about your reflections on on him and and, uh, where we move forward. Right. I mean, Trumpka was part of the team with John Sweeney, who who did have a uh, uh, who were elected head of the a- AFL-CIO in 1995, uh, and Trumpka succeeded Sweeney. And you know, there was a definite. They were they were both of them uh, definitely were a shift to the left, certainly in terms of politics, in terms of cultural questions, in terms of certain and as and Trump and Trumpka gave these extraordinarily powerful. Uh, morally impelli- uh, impressive uh, uh, speeches on behalf of racial justice and 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 white workers supporting Obama uh, when he first ran for president. So Trumpka Trumpka shifted the entire sort of and, and Sweeney too the entire sort of ethos of the of the top labor leadership to the to the left to, to the to the left wing of the Democratic Party. Before that, it had been on the center and sometimes even the right. That was very important. Um, and also Trumpka was, you know, much had in fact got risen to national fame by conducting a, a 1930s style strike at Pittston Coal in, in 1989. So, um, you, you know, it, you know, Trump had many virtues. What they were, he was not able to do uh, uh, was, was in fact to, to increase the institutional, you know, membership power of organized labor. I mean, that, that remains a, 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 a you know, a, a, a problem, more than a problem, <laughs> an existential crisis. Uh, despite adopting the program of, the, of what, what is the left, in effect, uh, to, to a degree anyway, um, he was unable to do that. And uh, I, that is the problem confronting, uh, I say, not just the union movement, but the entire sort of, uh, you know, Democratic Party slash, um, um, you know, liberal sort of left in America, because you need institutions to bulwark and 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 anchor uh, your, your your politics, your political initiatives, and your and also your social movements. And that's something that is that has been eroded in the last uh, many decades. And now um, there's the possibility of the um, changes that Liz uh, Schuler, the incoming uh, AFL-CIO president, can yeah. make. It's quite a challenge. Yeah, I mean, she she is uh, uh, sort of in the mold of, of, of Trumpka, obviously. I mean, one of the is- ter- internal issues in the AFL-CIO is should the leader of the AFL-CIO be, be a, a kind of a referee uh, you know, resolving disputes among the various unions. And that's obviously some one job that needs to be done. There are those. Or should the head of the AFL-CIO 
be a kind of um, and and with an apparatus that 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 is behind them, be a kind of uh, organizing center, a kind of mobilizing center in and of itself. And you know that's that's a, that's a debate that goes on because obviously some big big unions, I mean unions themselves, can, you know, have traditionally done that. So you know why, why should they not? Be, why should the that be taken over by another entity, the AFL-CIO? So that that's a that's a, a kind of a um, of an issue, I would say. I mean, I would say that one of the one of the things that the head of the AFL CIO does is is to be a, the public face of labor. And you want someone who's very uh, attractive and engaging. And 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 to my mind, um, uh, 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 Sarah Nelson, I think she's head of the flight attendants, uh, is is that face. I mean, she's the alternative to Liz Schuler. And um, you know, many people think that. Well, I'm not sure her institutional power would be any greater than Liz Schuler, but she would be a kind of fresh and almost generational uh, shift in in the in the face of labor. In anyway, you know. well, and we've interviewed her for today's uh, program as well. So <laughs> great to hear you uh, bring uh, her up. This has been uh, a really uh, enlightening and uh, informative uh, interview. Really appreciate uh, your knowledge and the history of all of this as well. Thank you so much for coming on today. You're welcome. Professor Nelson Lichtenstein, history professor at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Follow him on Twitter at Nelson Lichtens, L-I-C-H-T-E-N-S-1. Nelson Lichtens 1. We're back in a few minutes. Michelangelo Signorelli on Sirius XM. 